Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm bringing you this podcast from the iHeart Breakthrough Radio Studios in Philadelphia. Teams at CHOP have been making amazing scientific breakthroughs for more than 160 years. Many of those teams are led by women. These women are pioneers. They're also an inspiration. They've inspired many young women to choose careers in healthcare and science, and they've inspired me. In a special two-part episode, I'll introduce you to four female scientists from Children's Hospital. Their discoveries are making a difference for children and families around the world. I'm honored to have them join us today. Please join me in welcoming our scientists. Dr. Deborah French, Director of the Human Pluripotent Stem Cell Corps in the Raymond G. Perlman Center for Cellular and Molecular Therapeutics. Hello. Dr. Allison Curry, Senior Scientist and Director of Epidemiology and Biostatistics in the Center for Injury Research and Prevention. Hello. Dr. Renata Pellegrino da Silva, Laboratory Director in the Center for Applied Genomics. Hello. And Dr. Julia Parrish-Morris, Scientist in the Center for Autism Research. Hello. In a recent story, each of you talked about your research interests and the impact your work is having on children. I want to explore these topics with you today. Dr. French, your research involves stem cells. What's been your biggest breakthrough? Establishing the human pluripotent stem cell technology at CHOP and bringing an infrastructure for investigators to study human disease in a dish has probably been one of my biggest breakthroughs. I arrived at CHOP in 2008, and this technology was in its infancy. So there was no template in place for success to generate a core. I have established this core as director and have built an infrastructure where investigators now can create pluripotent stem cells. We can gene edit these cells to either create or correct mutational defects. And importantly, we can differentiate these cells down developmental paths to generate cell lineages of choice. So this has really enabled CHOP to be at the forefront of cellular therapeutics in the competitive field of pluripotent stem cell biology. So Dr. French, many of the people listening probably don't understand the science behind breakthroughs. Can you tell me a little bit more about how a child might come to CHOP and benefit from the work you're doing? Absolutely. A child who comes to CHOP with a particular disease, if it's a genetic disease and a mutational defect has been identified, what we're able to do is now generate human cells which can be research tools for investigators in order to study that disease. So what they're able to do now is to use these cells, direct it to the cell lineage that is, could be affected in this uh, patient, and study that mechanism and identify that mechanism, and more importantly, to um, identify screening um, to look at drug therapeutics. So you mentioned gene editing. Is that like editing a paper? Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Yeah, gene editing is a major breakthrough. And it's a major breakthrough in this technology because the cells that we work with are so amenable to gene editing. And basically what we can do now is target a specific gene in the genome and actually 
create a mutation, which results in a mutational defect. And then what we end up having after that are control and disease-specific lines. That can be studied, studying the human disease in a dish to identify mechanism and, more importantly, to screen drugs and to screen and test therapeutic applications. Well, that's really amazing. I can sort of see a future where children are coming to CHOP from around the world to get diagnosed, but also to have their genes edited so that their disease is cured. Absolutely. And that's the goal for all of us, that that will happen. Well, it's very inspiring work you're doing. Dr. Carey, your research focuses on preventing motor vehicle crashes among children and adolescents. What's been your breakthrough moment? So my biggest breakthrough moment came soon after I arrived at CHOP. Um, Before arriving at CHOP, I worked at the health department in New York City, and we had the opportunity to conduct analyses on administrative data, on birth and death certificate data, in order to improve the lives of New York City residents. So when I got to CHOP, I realized that the field of traffic safety wasn't leveraging these big data on driver licensing, on traffic citations, on police reported crashes, in the way that it really could to improve what we know about children and adolescents in motor vehicle crashes. So I have um, spent a lot of my time since coming to CHOP figuring out ways that we can use these big data for research purposes to really help us to understand how teens learn to drive, and how we can prevent their crashes. A lot of my recent studies have focused on merging together the wealth of data that we collect on patients in the electronic health record to statewide data sets on driver licensing and crashes in New Jersey. And we've been able to look at how teens with different medical conditions, such as autism and ADHD, transition to drivers in adolescence, and once they're on the road, how they can become as safe as possible. So this is really interesting work. Can you tell me, does the team that you work with actually go out and study crash sites? We don't. Currently, most of my work is already existing administrative data. These very, very large databases of 16, 17 million drivers, all the crashes that they're in, all the citations that they get. And then we link that to data on health outcomes, as well as data that occurs before the crash so we can learn more about the driver. So have you had a big aha moment when you looked at some of the data that you're describing? We have. In particular, our study of teens who are getting licensed with autism. We know how important it is for independence and encouraging social integration, how important licensure is in this stage. And what we heard anecdotally when we first started trying to undertake this work was that teens with autism don't get licensed. And we've been able to show that, in fact, one in three teens with autism are getting licensed. And in fact, many more parents and teens are interested in getting licensed. So we're really working now to figure out how to optimize the, the learning to drive process among teens with autism. And your colleagues have really informed the child passenger safety laws that we know today around the United States, which is amazing work. They also have been focused on teen driving in general. Are there a few things that you might tell the audience about what you've learned about teen driving? We've been able to do a lot of research to inform graduated driver licensing policies, which are the policies that support teens phasing into more complicated driving scenarios. In particular, in New Jersey, which is the state that we work, that I have my 
my data set in, teens that are 18 to 20 that are just getting licensed are supported under graduated driver licensing laws. This is not the case in, in the majority of U.S. states. And so we've been able to kind of lay the foundational groundwork with our data in order to inform policymakers and advocates in other states who are considering improving and extending their graduated driver licensing policies. Well, it's really amazing that the research you're doing is really informing laws in different states across the country and hopefully protecting children and teens and other drivers to be safer drivers. Dr. Pellegrina Da Silva, your work focuses on developing advanced genomic technologies and techniques. Can you tell me about your breakthrough moment? Sure, absolutely. So I have been in the field of genomics for at least 15 years now, and I kind of remember me in college just listening about genomic sequencing, and it was such a thing so far from our reality when I was an undergrad student. And now I am the one that actually conduct this type of research in a CHOP, and I can see this coming closer to patients, not only in a dream level or the cost that was really costly. So 10 years ago, uh, cost for a one genome sequencing was about $1 million. And now we are able to get $1,000, which is still very expensive, but it's getting closer. And if you think about that, it took us almost 10 years to sequence in the first human genome. Now we can do a chop in six days. That's my breakthrough. And the most important thing is what type of answers we can bring with this genome, right? It's just because it's beautiful and fancy. No, it's actually because it can bring answers to these families. And most of the time, my main breakthrough is see families from the entire planet Earth that have no answer about rare disease, for example, that have three kids affected dying in front of them and they have no answer, and we are able to give them an answer. We might not treat it yet, but at least we can resolve, and they give some resolution. So that's my, my main um, happiness when I run a genetic test for this type of kids. So your work takes lots of computing power. Can you give us a little insight on what that means? Absolutely, yeah. We pretty much generate about two terabytes of data every time we run a sequence in a small proportion. And we have like big servers and we actually have a big tool that actually transfer data in, analyze whole genomes in less than two hours. We were able to get a Guinness Award last year for that because we were able to analyze about 1,000 whole genomes in two hours. And this is very rewarding because again, it can result not only in the discovery level, but actually bringing a resolution for a family. And do you work with collaborators across the CHOP Research yes. Institute? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. We collaborate with a variety of studies, including neuropsychiatric, diabetes, and many others. And we also hold the largest biobank in the world for pediatrics, right? So it's under our responsibility to keep this biobank safe and properly used. So we have genotyped or typed genetically about 380,000 samples, and we do have phenotype information, cell lines, and all follow-up. In about 150,000, uh, we have phenotypic, very well-established data that we take care. 
and are very happy to to provide information when is needed. So, and the biobank is just tissue samples. Yeah, we have all type of tissues, mostly blood. We have again, we prepare cell lines that are immortalized. So, basically, we can access genetic information long term. If unfortunately we lose a patient, so we have that. Obviously, is all consented, but it's it's a very rich bank that can provide. Answers. So the science that's behind your work allows families to come from all over the world to get diagnosed and certain diseases, but also more importantly, individualized or personalized medicine that might help their specific type based on their, their genes. Correct. Very interesting and not so futuristic anymore, right? Now you're doing it. Quite exciting uh, to happening. think about uh, what might be in 10 years from now. Yes, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Dr. Parrish Morris, your research focuses on autism, particularly in girls and women. What's the biggest breakthrough moment for you in your work? I would say the biggest breakthrough for me was really a realization that a failure of our field to understand how autism expresses itself in girls was not just, you know, a scientific hole in the literature, but really it was an issue of justice. And that meant a lot to me when I realized that I said, wait a minute, We don't understand how autism even works in girls, um, and that's really not fair. And uh, so I'm interested in the question of how autism expresses differently in different populations as a scientist, but then also just as a person and as a parent and as a sister, I really care a lot about fairness in science. And, um, And it's important that we understand girls so we can help them get the best kind of intervention possible that is appropriate for them and that they're gonna benefit the most from. Can you tell the listeners about the incidence of autism between girls and boys? Sure, sure. So our best estimates so far are that, for the most part, girls are diagnosed with autism, one girl for every four boys. And this varies, though, across um, the range of intellectual abilities. So when there's intellectual impairment that also goes along with the autism diagnosis, the incidence of females to males becomes higher. So it's more like two males for every one female. And then um, as you go up in IQ, then you end up with something more along an estimate of 10 males for every one female. And this is based on, you know, 60 years of research that is really comes from a male perspective. So autism was originally described only in males. And all of the diagnostic instruments that have been developed have been developed on largely male samples. So when people think about their prototypical person with autism, it usually tends to be kind of a young white male. What we're learning over the past 10 years, 10, 20 years, is that really autism is not, you know, only in young white males. It occurs in all racial groups. It occurs across all socioeconomic statuses. And it may have been underdiagnosed in women because of a lack of understanding for the way that autism might be expressed slightly differently across these different groups. And my particular interest in women is, you know, also kind of intersectional in that I'm interested in the way that this expresses itself based on different cultural experiences as well. So autism can look different depending upon the different social influences that you had growing up. And when you are doing your work, is there something that sort of jumps out of you that's 
different about how it expresses itself in girls and women than men. A growing number of people are actually exploring what the female autism phenotype might look like. But it appears that there seems to be a little more social motivation. So uh, for whatever reason, we don't know if it's biologically based. We don't know if it's because women are subjected to different societal demands than men. Um, but the what people have found is that girls are more likely to sort of imitate their peers and stay closer to them on the playground, engage in more what we refer to as masking or camouflage, where they sort of either suppress their autism symptoms or engage in social behaviors that um, they see have worked in terms of helping them fit in a little bit better. But this also comes with a big emotional toll. So it's very exhausting to constantly sort of be pretending or camouflaging or masking. So that's one piece of it. And then the research that we're doing in our lab, which I'm really excited about. So I'm a language researcher. I'm really interested in the way that people communicate verbally. And there are some subtle differences that we've been finding between females with autism and males with autism um, that are consistent with the differences in language that we find between males and females without autism. So these sex differences are kind of preserved. But they really hadn't been described before in the literature. So we're finding subtle differences that when they add up, it can make it harder to identify a girl with autism or it can make it more likely that this girl might be misdiagnosed. So that's one thing that's really um, prominent in the literature is that Girls with autism tend to go through a variety of different diagnoses before they land on an autism diagnosis. So depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, or they're, you know, missed entirely. They're not diagnosed with anything until they're adults. They do tend to be, girls tend to be diagnosed significantly later than boys with autism, which means that they're missing a critical window for intervention. And then when they are diagnosed, the interventions sometimes are very based on sort of male-centric things like toys and, you know, trucks and those types of interests, whereas girls with autism don't have exactly the same interests as boys with autism for whatever reason. Those kinds of things, I think, are very exciting. Another thing that we do in our lab is um, infrared eye tracking which is an exciting technology that allows you to determine where and for how long a person is looking when they're looking at a social scene. So we showed, this is with a collaborator of mine, Claire Harrop at UNC, we showed girls with autism and boys with autism pictures of kids playing together, playing separately. And what we found is that the girls with autism looked at faces much more than the boys with autism did. And, but yet less than typical girls. And what has happened in the past is that oftentimes girls with autism are compared to a mixed group of typical folks or they're, they're lumped in with boys with autism without enough statistical power to determine whether there are actually sex differences. A big push of mine and, and my collaborators is to collect enough data on girls to actually start describing what autism looks like in girls. And if we can do that, then we can start to design interventions that are going to be maximally helpful for the way that autism is expressed in girls. Well, I've learned so much from you just from the few minutes that you were talking how do you spread this information to parents and pediatricians across the country, really around the world? That's a great question. As you can probably tell, I really love communication. But, um, but the, I think the media is starting to pick up that, that there's research happening out there focused on girls with autism. I think that awareness really is rising. I was just at the International Meeting for Autism Research, which is um, this wonderful collaboration with you know, a thousand, two thousand, however many um, researchers with or who are studying autism, and there really was an awareness, a growing awareness that we need to be a lot more um, interested 
in how autism is different from person to person rather than just kind of putting people within the category of autism and then ignoring their race or their sex or their ethnic background or their, you know, cultural differences that, you know, people with autism aren't just autism. People with autism are people first, right? Um, Really, really important. And they have personalities and they have thoughts and, you know, feelings. And um, so it's, it's an exciting area. I would love if there was more awareness because I feel like sometimes parents looking at their daughters who aren't quite fitting in and are hearing, you know, maybe varying things from their doctors. I would like autism to be a thought in in these parents' heads and in these doctors' heads that, you know, yes, she's a girl, but maybe we should have her evaluated by specialists like our folks at the Center for Autism Research who are really exceptionally good at identifying autism in girls. They're just amazing clinicians. Uh, so, yeah, that's what I would like. I would like it to come up as a thought. Um, and because I think sometimes the girls just aren't even referred by teachers or by parents or by doctors. Well, it sounds like we have a lot of work to do as scientists, but just in the general public to raise awareness about this. So I'm, I'm so happy that you're focused in this area of research. Likewise. I love it. Thank you, doctors. I'm going to pause the conversation here. Tune into part two, where these inspiring women give their advice to aspiring scientists. To learn more about research at CHOP, go to the Research Institute's blog, cornerstone at blog.research.chop.edu. And to learn more about CHOP, please visit chop.edu giving. At Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.